Welcome to another podcast episode of DIY Guitar Making. I also produce video episodes of DIY Guitar Making live in the workshop. To find both the podcasts and the videos all in one place, go to DIYGuitarMaking.com. You can even subscribe to the email list there to receive new episodes, both the videos and the podcasts, directly in your inbox as they come out. Again, that's DIYGuitarMaking.com. And with that, let's get to the show. Hey guys, this is just a special note for the listener, particularly if you are listening to this podcast soon after it has come out. I am adding the old Q&A episodes that are normally on my DIY guitar making YouTube channel. I am adding those to the library of the podcast, starting from the earliest Q&A until I'm, I work my way up to the current day, in which case then... As new Q&As come out, they will be loaded to both the podcast and the YouTube channel and my website. So anyway, all of this is just to say, if you're listening to this soon after it came out, some of the uh, sort of promotional things that I mentioned about the online courses and the workshops and things like that might be out of date. If you want current information on that, just go to my website, ericschaferguitars.com. So the questions that we'll be covering today, the topics today are buffing with true oil, the dreaded 14th fret hump we'll talk about, how to avoid that, and what's the easiest wood to learn side bending with. All right, so let's just get right into it. And this question is from Greg from the Members Forum. It's a question about true oil. Greg has taken the Building an OM Acoustic course, which also comes with the true oil course. And so this is all within the context of that true oil course. So Greg writes, I want to string up and play the guitar after three days of waiting for the final coat to partially cure on the back. Can I do this? That is my question, and here is the background slash update. This past week, I went to buff out the guitar after three full weeks of allowing the true oil finish to cure. I started with a test run on the back, wet sanding using micro mesh, beginning with 3200 and working up to 12,000 grit. What I ended up doing is sanding back down to almost bare wood. Actually, I want to say one thing about that there, and that's just that the wet sanding with micro mesh, Greg and I had talked about in the forum earlier, and it's something that Greg really wanted to try out, um, but it's not something that I necessarily recommend in the course. Just for anyone listening out there, so you know that wet sanding on true oil is not a typical way of buffing. Essentially, with true oil, you're laying on hyper-thin coats and then eventually buffing out at the end. You shouldn't have to sand on the true oil at all, um, which is probably what led to the sand-through that Greg's experiencing. But in the thread, I did tell Greg to go ahead and try it out. But I did say to test it on scrap. Always test on scrap wood, man. Never just commit it directly to your guitar because you're going to have problems when you're trying something new out. It might sound like it's not a big deal to get a sand through, but honestly, it's often exceptionally hard to recover from sand throughs. But it sounds like you recovered fine. And so I'll read the rest of the question. 
I then proceeded to buff the rest of the guitar with the Stumac fine and swirl remover polishes with great success. As for the back, I started the True Oil thin layering process over again, and it looks like this time around the back is going to look even better. So here at coat number 21, I'd like to think that I could string it up here in about three days, be playing it, and then do the final buffing of the back with the compounds this time around three weeks from now. Is this an option or should I just wait the full three weeks again, buff it out, and then string it back up? So what Greg's referring to here is the fact that really with any finish, there's always a recommended amount of time that you should wait after you've applied the final coat before you buff it out. And he's wondering in the meantime, especially since the rest of the guitar has already waited at least two weeks to cure, in his case, three weeks, then is he good to go to play it after just a couple of days of cure time for that finish repair work that he did in the back? And my answer is honestly to just wait it out. There's no reason to jump the gun and start playing it right now. I know it's tempting. I know you've put a lot of work into this, and it probably feels almost just brutal waiting, having to wait to get to finally hear how this thing sounds. But a freshly applied finish is soft, and it's soft for a long time, for at least a week, sometimes two weeks. That's why it's best to wait at least two weeks. You mentioned waiting three weeks before. That's great. That's more than recommended. That's fine. But really, you know, I'd like to see you wait at least a week, preferably two weeks. You don't need to wait three. Then buff it out and then play it. Because the thing is with that soft finish, if you play it, especially because that soft finish is on the back, what can happen with oil finishes or with shellac is it imprints. So you put it on your body and, or, or not even on your body, you put it on a, a carpet because you're, um, stringing it up and those little fibers of the carpet can leave little micro imprints or the fibers of your clothes can leave little micro imprints in the finish. So the whole point of letting the finish harden over two weeks is, is to prevent that imprinting. And it's also to prevent from dragging the finish when you buff it out. So patience, man, patience, you got this. You're on the home stretch. Okay, and this question is from Eric. Eric writes, my concern is this. Regardless of what the neck angle is, as the fretboard projects over the soundboard, it will adopt the same radius as the soundboard. Assuming that we want a flat fretboard, how do we counteract this? This is actually a... I love this question. This is a really great question. I get this a lot. This is a common problem that people have. I think it's because a lot of the instruction out there for guitar making, especially for beginners always describes radiusing and dimensioning the fretboard to its final thickness and then gluing it down to the neck and the body. And this is really just not the best way of doing it. I think this instruction um, comes largely from kit building. So if you're building from a kit, of course, you end up with, you start out with a pre-radiused, um, sometimes even already fretted fingerboard. And the problem with this is once you glue it down, because it's already at its final dimension, there's no room for you to level and radius that fretboard any further. And so what you always end up with is the dreaded 14th fret hump, 
more or less. You know, some people, depending on how you do it, you might have very little of it. You might have a lot of it if you have a poor neck angle, but you're going to have some of it if you're completely dimensioning your fretboard before you glue it down. I glue my fretboards down flat, completely flat, and radius in place using a radius beam. This way, the board itself, which is the foundation for all of your fretwork later, the board itself is perfectly flat from uh, nut to fretboard tongue. And then, of course, you can add a tiny bit of fall away onto the fretboard tongue, but that's a separate issue. I don't want to get off track here. Uh, the point is you have a good foundation on which to do your fretwork, whereas the solution that kit building instructions would give you would be to level all your frets after the build in order to kind of deal with the extreme amount of fall away that you get on that tongue from gluing it down, from it, you know, conforming to the radius, as Eric pointed out here. And leveling the frets in this way is not ideal compared to leveling the board. Honestly, if you do the build right, you shouldn't even need any kind of fret level at the end. I rarely do one on a finished guitar. Now, it is definitely a little bit more technically difficult to do all your fret work after, to do the radius and all the fret work on the board after it's glued down. So I understand why people would want to completely dimension and even fret the board before they glue it down. So for those people and for those working with kits, um, I'm going to give you some suggestions to mitigate this problem. One thing you can do is when you radius the kerfing before you glue down the top, you can actually flatten out the radius in the upper bout so that when you glue down the top, it will adopt that radius all around the lower bout section, it'll have a nice smooth radius, but because you flattened it at the upper bout end, it's going to flatten out as it approaches the fretboard. And then you would also leave the transverse bar flat. So don't radius that, and that's gonna leave that upper bout area reasonably flat. It'll still have a little bit of radius on it coming from the, the other area, but it will be pretty close to flat. Another thing you can do, even if you have a radius all around, is just take a hard flat block and flatten out that landing pad area just a little bit. In fact, even when I'm doing the fretboard the way that I do it, the correct way, I always flatten out the landing area of the fretboard tongue just a little bit. You're never going to get it completely flat by sanding this way, but you're just removing a little bit of that radius. But again, just to reiterate, the best way is to glue the fretboard down before it's radiused. Okay, let's do one more question. Okay, here's the question. What kind of wood would you recommend for a first build? I am handy with woodworking, but lack all necessary power tools, so I'll be building this first one all by hand tools. But anyhow, I would like your recommendation for a good sounding tone wood for all sides, but on the easier side to work with as far as bending, as I have never bent wood of any kind before. Okay, so he's asking for my recommendation of the best wood to get started in side bending with, which is a great question to ask because you don't want to just get sidetracked or drawn in by the really pretty looking woods out there because side bending, when you first get into it, you're almost guaranteed to break a side. 
So you really do want to start with essentially practice wood, wood that bends well. I like to recommend cherry and rosewood. Both cherry and rosewood bend extremely easily. That's part of the reason why rosewood is so popular in factory production. And more than anything, the woods to avoid are figured woods. Anything with a figure, whether it's flamed mahogany or flamed maple. That figure that you see is essentially alternating end grain and longitudinal grain. That's what creates that sort of shimmering uh, look of highly figured wood. Of course, that sort of arrangement does not make for easy bending. And it's a lot easier to snap a piece when the grain is alternating between those types. You want, what you want is the plainest looking wood that you can find with the straightest grain, with the least amount of run out. I know for uh, side slats, it's a very long section of wood for the grain to be running perfectly straight. So there's always going to be a little bit of run out on one end or the other, but you just want to find the least amount of run out that you can. So it's never a bad idea to pick this up from a local supplier if you can, so you can actually kind of pick through the stacks. Although if you can't do that, a lot of the Luthery suppliers are really good at doing that for you. Um, some other woods to avoid, I would say walnut and mahogany. They're not super difficult, but they're sort of in the middle range of difficulty. And I'm going to also say, see if you can get an extra set, a practice set, so that you can just practice making some initial bends on because you're probably going to run into problems. You're probably going to either have compression marks or you're going to snap a side or something like that. It happens to everyone at some point. And usually that point is the first time you do it because you have no experience with it. So just ask your supplier. They might have like an orphaned uh, cherry piece or something like that. Orphaned meaning that uh, they somehow lost the other book matching piece to it or the other book matching piece just had a really nasty knot in it or something like that. So it wasn't acceptable. So now they have this orphaned piece that they can't get rid of. So they'll just sell it for real cheap. And yeah, I think that should work out really well for you. All right. So that does it for the questions. Uh, if you guys want to ask a question, if you're a member of the online guitar building school, just ask it right in the members form. That's the best place for it. If you're not a member, YouTube comments. That's the second best place. Anyway, thanks for listening to me babble on about all kinds of uh, interesting guitar-related stuff. Have a good weekend, and goodbye for now. If you enjoyed this and you learned something here, please subscribe and leave a review on whatever platform that you are enjoying this on at the moment. And if you want to really learn more, take one of my structured online courses at ericschaferguitars.com. Or you can register for a hands-on guitar building workshop here with me in Burnville, Pennsylvania. Bye for now.